thank you for agreeing to do this interview. It is um, my pleasure. Uh, my goal in general is just to explore the pathways that uh, a person might take if they want to become a leader in education. And I want anyone who listens to this to be able to learn from your story, you know, uh, what are the things they have to do if they aspire to be where you are. And um, the first thing I want to talk about, though, is that the last time we talked to you, one phrase kept coming up. It was collaborative leadership. You talked about uh, as your style of leadership. And when I read your bio online, that phrase still comes up. And uh, when people traditionally think of leadership, they tend to think of a, a top-down system of a visionary of some kind who is driving change within a system. He's encountering resistance and he's fighting against that resistance. He's trying to change minds. He's, he's, you know, people are unwilling to change and he's visionary in that sense. So I just wanted you to talk about collaborative leadership, what that means for you, how that's different and in practice, what does it look like and why it's important? Okay, so did you hear yourself? You kept saying he for the leader. Yes, yes. So uh, I don't think it's necessarily that it's a more feminine trait to be more collaborative, but I do think that there is an understanding that a command and control st style of leading, which is a bit of what you have been speaking of, uh, works in times of crisis, and there's all different types of leadership styles, and you can't be the same type of leader at every moment in every situation because some sometimes you need to take command and control if it's a crisis situation. But for the most part, uh, if you are going to engage the people that you work with, the team that you work with, the stakeholders at the table, you uh, almost always have to do that through influence rather than by direction or by uh, power. And if you try to do it by power, by telling people what to do, by not listening to them, by not engaging them, by not empowering them, by not letting them be part of the voice and the vision and giving them impact, then you devalue them. And when you devalue them, you disengage them and you will not be able to really move forward. No matter what your vision is, you won't have the trust, you won't have the support, you won't be known for your integrity, which is what's really most important to me. And you won't be able to collectively build that vision because it shouldn't be just your vision, it should be a vision that is able to take those voices and pull them together and and sort out through those diverse probably voices and priorities and uh, uh, strategies how you are going to move forward with something that is cohesive is able to be articulated is something that can you can develop an operational plan around and that you can have metrics for success where you can again be transparent and communicate and everybody can hopefully, or most people, you'll never get everybody, can embrace and support and engage and uh, have input into uh, to make change. And I really believe in that change model where, you know, you, you know, in some instances you have a burning platform, but for the most part, what you have to do is you have to, in my opinion, collectively develop your vision and your strategy, bring your champions together early on, articulate what that looks like in an easy to understand and comprehend accessible feasible manner and then slowly move it forward knowing you will always have resistors and that you always have to pay attention to them because they usually have something worthwhile to say mm. 
Yeah, and this actually, you know, it jives with my experience interacting with the healthcare system. Something I've always said that there's no one decision maker in the healthcare system, and it actually makes it pretty difficult to lead or to bring change into a healthcare system. Because I remember when you're trying to bring new technology, for instance, you have the innovation people, you have the IT people, you have the nurses, and you can convince like a, a whole section, spend a lot of time trying to convince a lot of section, and then one person says no, and the whole thing falls apart. So a lot of people need to say yes, and there's... It just takes one person to say no. And so that has been something that has been really personally difficult for me. And I wanted to talk you to talk a little bit about how you are able to, you know, get people to see the things that you want them to see, how you're able to engage the stakeholders and drive change. Uh, well, I think you have to be patient. Uh, you know, what, what you were describing is that, you know, one person put up a roadblock or was a challenge or, or put a stop to it. You know, I think there, every journey has its bumps in the road and its forks in the road. And what you have to do when that occurs is to step back and say, okay, well, why did they say no? What was the lever that made them say this isn't gonna move forward? Was it money? Was it people? Was it just timing? Uh, was it that, that you hadn't told the story in a way that they could understand it or they could imagine what the future would look like once you introduce that change? And you can't automatically assume that they said no for a bad reason. Often they say no because of the reality of the moment. It could be that you just brought it forward at a moment in time where everybody is beyond their capacity and therefore they don't actually have the energy or the enthusiasm to embrace that. Whereas if, if you wait some time or you rearticulate it or you pull them in to say, well, explain to me why not and give them a voice, then usually you can step back and, and get to yes eventually, but it's not going to ever be just a direct line from your starting point to what you see as your end point. You're going to have lots, lots of forks in the road, and you're going to have to be willing to listen more than you tell. Hmm. And I, I, I relate to what you said about telling a story that involves them, because, um, for instance, you, you think that you see a problem where the nurses are experiencing a pain. But oftentimes, I find that when you talk to the admin guys, uh, they are not feeling the pain. And you have to tell the story in a way that it somehow benefits them. So if a person is concerned about the bottom line, then you have to tell the story about how it will help your bottom line. And if you're talking to someone uh, who is who's concerned about resources, you have to tell a story about how you know this will uh, perhaps benefit them in the way that they manage resources. And a solution then has to be uh, multidimensional and not just address one pain point in order to move, I find. Well, because any change you make or any plan that you make is going to have some consequences, which you had planned on, and it's going to have unintended, unintended consequences that you never even expected or, 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 or predicted, and you're going to have to be ready uh, for those. And I think, again, when you think about any change that you want to make, if you're making a change to the healthcare system, it can't be about the bottom line, it can't be about the financial people, it can't be about the nurses, it has to be about how do we make healthcare more accessible, uh, more effective, more efficient for the patient, for the family, for our communities. And it needs to come back to always that being the central point of decision making. If it doesn't do that, then we shouldn't be doing it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I was reading recently, and this is what uh, it has been an idea that I find has been spreading recently that administrators, their goal is to think about how to make your staff 
better and how to make the job more palatable, better for the staff. Why is this the staff's decision? Because when the staff is comfortable, then they can they can you know help the patient population. So there's that. Uh, this is what they said that you know there's a disconnect when administrators uh, always uh, jump the staff to think about the patient. I'm not sure what you think about that. Well, I think I think you have to think about both. Yeah. Um, you know, people are not going to you know people aren't going to be able to provide care if they are not well themselves. Yeah. So if they they don't take care of themselves, if they're not well, both mentally and physically, they can't provide care to others. And you have to look at what in the environment is is supporting those people who are taking care of others for themselves to be well, to be engaged. Uh, to be, uh, uh, you know, I don't believe, I think resilience is not something we should be talking about anymore. Resilience puts too much of the onus on, you know, you got knocked down, it's your problem, you pick yourself up. It's more It's more about what needs to be in place, uh, not to find work-life balance, but to find meaning in work so mm -hmm. that you, so that you, that you want to go to work, that you find some joy in work rather than it being work. Mm -hmm. uh, and healthcare, there's nothing, there's nothing where that should be more of an opportunity to find that because it is an incredible privilege in life, I believe, to have the opportunity to care for others. That's what they call it when you get, you know, in a, if you're a hospital, when you get your physician appointment to a hospital, it's called having your privileges. Well, it is a privilege to be part of the healthcare system and just to, you know, as, as your work, to be taking care of others, whether it's to make them better with regard to what other health issue they have, or to give them comfort. Yeah. So maybe talk about yourself a little bit. I want to understand your leadership journey. If when you were leaving school, you were aspiring to do what you're doing now, or was it something you stumbled on? Is it like, you know? Somewhere somewhere in between those yeah. two. So I grew up in a small town. It was a small town at the time that I grew up and uh, came to Toronto and lived with some friends, did two years of undergraduate. And like, I had this direct path I'm going to go to medical school because I want to be a doctor. I want to be a family doctor. I'm going to go back to the town I lived in. I'm going to go into practice with the physicians that I knew from that small town. This is, and I'm going to, you know, be a wife and mother and raise the family so that I can do this, you know, and have balance in my life. And that didn't work out um, for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, I married somebody that was never going to go live in a small town. My husband's an orthopedic surgeon. I talked about that before. We met on day one in medical school. We were anatomy partners. He was always going to want to work, uh, you know, at a in a large center to do the kind of work that he wanted to do. Uh, and secondly, when I did my first year of family medicine, I hated it. I was terrible at it, um, and it was for a whole bunch of reasons. One of them was that that. I, I learned that um, I'm not very patient sometimes, and I prefer sort of high stakes, you know, adrenaline charge situations, wise, which is why I ended up doing cardiac anesthesiology and critical care. Uh, I also learned that, you know, not only was I not patient with how I interacted with patients week after week, but I was terribly impatient with my husband as well. And if we were going to, if our marriage was going to survive, I couldn't be sitting at home night after night not having to do much call as a family medicine resident with him doing one in three surgery call at that time because the PARO agreement didn't exist in the way that we know it now and loving every moment of his time in the hospital. You know, surgeons love to operate. He got to a point where he didn't particularly like being there overnight, but he loved what he was doing. 
and I hated having to be sitting at home, never knowing when he was coming home, if he was coming home, and you know what what we were going to, you know, how we were going to find some balance. I would say in our marriage. So, it, like, like I had to step back really early in my marriage and go, "Oh, this isn't going to work out so well," and figure out with him what was going to work out. And you know, thankfully at that time, it was easier to change residency programs, and so in. When I started my second year of residency, I started over again as a PGY-1 because then there were internships and then residency. I went from my family medicine internship to being a uh, for PGY-1, well, two in anesthesiology, did four years of that, and then a fellowship here in cardiac and critical care and never looked back. And, you know, and that sort of set me up for... Um, going into a practice of anesthesiology and I started at Toronto Western Hospital but again I, I knew what kind of medicine I wanted to do but I never in for a minute contemplated that I wanted to be a leader in education or in the healthcare system I had a passion for taking care of patients I had a passion for for doing complicated um, what other people would view as high stress cases for doing critical care and pulling together those complex complicated patients and and, uh, and and having a team approach to care. Very, very early on, I was an advocate for a team-based rounds in the ICU where everybody on the healthcare team, including the patient, had a voice as to their care. Um, and I also very early on uh, understood that I had a passion for teaching. And I won, I, I took on a lot of teaching responsibilities, both in the undergraduate and postgraduate medicine. And I won several awards early on in my career and having won those awards and putting my hand up when needed gave me some opportunities. And the first opportunity for a leadership role was about three years into my time at Toronto Western. I'd been working as an attending physician in the med surge ICU where the cardiac surgery patients went, all of the post-op surgery patients that needed critical care went to. Um, and it was a med medical ICU as well and it had become a closed ICU just as I was starting my career. So it went from being where everybody took care of their own patients to a dedicated team of, of physicians taking care of the patients, and I was one of five. And the person that had been the leader, the physician that had had that vision, went off to take a role uh, at another hospital as a, the new chief of uh, Credit Valley Hospital, which hadn't even opened then. And of the other four physicians on the team, so there were five of us, I was for sure the youngest one, None of them wanted to take on that leadership role. They just said, nope, not doing that. Too much work, too much of my own personal time, not going to happen. And I put up my hand because I didn't want to see it go back to every physician taking care of their own patient because we had done so much to have a team-based approach, to have some consistency in approach to care of the patients, to really to empowering the other healthcare providers on the team. And I was worried that if none of us did it, that, that either they would bring somebody in that wasn't part of our team and didn't share in our values, or it would go back to what it was. So I took on that role and I had that role for three or four years um, until Toronto Western merged with Toronto General. And then the, the leadership for ICU transitioned over to the person that was the um, the director of the med surge ICU at the Toronto General because he had more seniority than I did. But it was a fantastic opportunity for me um, to really to lead a team of physicians and to develop an approach to uh, not just patient care but to supporting the fellows, the residents, the other healthcare learners in that environment 
and and to you know better understanding uh, how to be a mentor and coach um, to all of those different learners and to the faculty who are on that team with me as we continue to transition to being recognized as the critical care team. Mm. And so after I stopped being the director uh, and I recognized that I liked that leadership role, which I lost, you know, because because of the fact of the merger, like who knew that was going to happen, I thought about what I needed to do to better ensure my future as a leader in education and or uh, in healthcare. And so it was at that moment in time that I entered into and did, did my master's in uh, education on a part-time basis, being in full-time practice, and as by then having three kids. Mm. Wow. So would you say that you learned leadership through your, through your med school, or was that not part of the curriculum at all? God, no. No, it was not part of the curriculum. There was... Mm. The medical school, when I went to medical school, way, I graduated in 1978, there was very little of the roles besides medical expert uh, that was taught mm. in medical school at that moment in time. I subsequently took a bunch of leadership courses because in um, I moved to St. Michael's Hospital in 1997, uh, uh, still doing my master's in education at that time. It took me four years to finish it. And in 2000 at St. Michael's, um, partly because the then uh, Chief Medical Officer, EVP Medicine, and the CEO of the hospital recognized my um, my my skill set, uh, and and gave me an opportunity. I applied for and and was um, chosen as the next anesthetist in chief for the Department of Anesthesiology and Pain Medicine. So that was in 2000, and in 2001, I took on the role of medical director of perioperative services, which is uh, patient care from the time of being seen in the outpatient uh, clinic to being admitted the day of surgery, to your surgical procedure, to the PACU, post-anesthesia care unit, and all of the services that support that. And I did those two roles for uh, 11 and 12 years. And I took a bunch of leadership courses supported by the hospital um, at Rotman, uh, at Queens, uh, at Western, uh, I went to Harvard for six weeks at, at one moment in time early on in that, and uh, that really helped me to better understand that you could actually learn to be a leader, not just by doing the job, mm-hmm. but at, but actually by being educated and stepping back and reflecting on what skills you need uh, to be to better lead others, mm-hmm. or 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 to really. To turn it around, it's not so much about leading others as an empower, as in empowering a team to do the best that they can do. Mm-hmm. I like what you say about learning to lead. As leadership is something we learn, and I think you have a advantage position as, uh, you know, the vice dean of medical education. So you can speak to how the leadership curriculum has changed over time. What your vision is, and I'm also thinking about the not just the formal curriculum, but the informal curriculum that you know people, medical students go through. Um, so I'll tell you a bit about that. So, you know, in, uh, I was in a leadership role at St. Michael's and in uh, 2009, uh, they, uh, uh, a decision was taken to have the first real vice president of education for the hospital and they were building a building, the Lee Kaishing Knowledge Institute, which is uh, behind the main hospital at St. Michael's. And I applied for, I was actually asked to apply for, and again, I got that role. Still continued to be an assistant in chief for a few more years. 
And that was a huge opportunity to plan the education part, the education building of that building, and to rethink what education in a hospital could be about. And I did it in the, with a framework of everyone that enters the door, we are all teachers and we are all learners. We all had something to learn. So I'm totally committed to lifelong learning. And we all have something to teach each other. And that meant it didn't matter if you were a learner from a healthcare profession or an MBA program, you were coming uh, to learn uh, uh, journalism, for example, or you were a patient or a family member or a staff member or a physician. We were, we are all learners in that hospital and set up the programs along those lines and did uh, two separate strat plans with the help of uh, support from uh, some consultants who know better about how to do strat plans, but learned a lot about that. And really got to a point, did that job for seven and a half years, where the team was so effective, we were on our second strat plan, that all I needed really to do to, was to continue to advocate for them to have resources and to provide mentorship and coaching to the leaders on my team, and uh, at times to help them to deal with conflict and and to, to help them to develop their teams. And mm -hmm. I thought that was going to be the end for me, but the Dean of the Faculty of Medicine came after me to be the Vice Dean for the undergraduate program, so Vice Dean MD, which I started in July of 2016 when we were introducing the then very brand new Foundations curriculum. And that was an opportunity to lead a team through a huge change management project. And it was, again, just amazing the people that were on that team and, and really the work that needed to be done both, both for, for the learners, so it became a learner-focused initiative and also just dealing with the change management because we hadn't changed our curriculum significantly in mm. 25 years. Mm. So I just want to ask the last question because of the time. Um, mm. Talk a little bit about how you integrate leadership with clinical practice. Is it integrated into your day or is it something that you set time off, a week off, a day off to yeah. work on leadership? Well, so I'm very fortunate in the type of clinical work that I do in that I can say I have one day a week in the operating room and it's a parcel, right? I go in, I do my day in the OR, like Fridays I work in the OR, I usually do cardiac, take care of usually two patients the end of the day, transport the patient to the ICU, I'm done. I don't, somebody else takes over care. And then I do eight weeks of ICU a year. And again, start Monday morning, go to the next Monday morning. I work a few meetings in the week that I'm doing ICU. But the days I'm doing clinical, I am focused on patient care and teaching in the clinical environment. And the days I'm not in clinical, I'm focused on my role at the university and all the work that's, uh, that's entailed in doing that. So unlike you know, as I, you know, I'm not like a surgeon or a family doctor or an internist where there's continuity of care. Mine is episodic care, and that makes it uh, significantly, I think, easier uh, to find that balance between the, you know, enjoying your clinical work and being able to um, be fully engaged in your administrative educational work. Mm. Thank you very much for agreeing to talk to me, Dr. Halston. Uh, My pleasure. Yeah. You have a great day.